Welcome back to our Beyond the Lecture podcast. Today, you will be able to listen in to a conversation between our producer, Juliana Shallow, and the Academy's Spring 2022 Daimler Fellow, Lawrence Douglas. Douglas is a professor of law, jurisprudence, and social thought at Amherst College. He's widely known for his many publications, most recently for his book, Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Electoral Meltdown in 2020. Join us as the two discuss the origins and meaning of the term Verbrecherstaat, or criminal state, the rise of the atrocity paradigm post-Nuremberg, and the most recent Russian attack on Ukraine. Lawrence, thank you very much for being our guest on Beyond the Lecture. You are currently working on a book project on aggressive wars, atrocity, and the Verbrecherstaat, and you investigate law's response to the worst human rights violations. Let us begin by talking about where the term Verbrecherstaat actually comes from, because it might strike someone as a bit odd because states are not supposed to be criminal, right? So where does the term actually come from? And how has its meaning maybe changed? I locate the uh, term Verbrecherstaat from an interview that uh, the German philosopher Karl Jaspers conducted in 1965 with the editor-in-chief of Der Spiegel, uh, Rudolf Augstein. And Augstein had um, interviewed um, Jaspers in 65. This was on the eve of the possibility that the statute of limitations for Nazi crimes was about to expire in Germany. So this was 20 years after the end of the Second World War. Um, the German crime of murder was controlled by a 20-year statute of limitations. And uh, for listeners who might not know what a statute of limitations is, that just means that prosecutors have to bring charges within a certain period of time. And if they don't, then they can't bring those charges at all. And so a lot of people were concerned with the possibility that, uh-oh, after 1965, no one who was associated with Nazi atrocities would be able to be tried. And so Augstein asked this, uh, philo this famous philosopher, Jaspers, it's like, well, why are we so fixated with trying uh, former Nazis and former SS men? After all, other states have committed crimes in the past. And uh, Jaspers gave a, a provocative response. He said, yes, well, other states might have committed crimes, but they weren't Verbrecherstadt. They weren't criminal to their core. And that was a kind of, uh, it's, it's a very striking idea, this notion that a state uh, would be criminal to its core. And uh, as you suggested, it, it does have a kind of almost oxymoronic uh, ring to it from the perspective of traditional um, Western political and legal thought. Because if you look at traditional Western legal and political thought, uh, states are supposed to be the ultimate protectors of uh, security. They're supposed to be really the, the source of ordered legality. So the idea that a state could actually go from being the source of ordered legality to basically the main perpetrator of crimes, it's a very, very dissonant concept for traditional Western political and uh, legal thought. 
And we should bear in mind that Nuremberg was the first uh, international criminal trial in human history. And just also, just for one source of clarification, sometimes people hear of the term Nuremberg trial, singular, and sometimes you hear the term Nuremberg trials in plural. And uh, just so our listeners um, know what I'm talking about, so when it uses singular, Nuremberg refers to this international trial that was conducted by the United States, Great Britain, France, and the Soviet Union in tandem with one another. After the international trial ended in October 1946, the Americans just happened to stage 12 follow-up trials um, also in Nuremberg, and that's why sometimes we hear it referred to in the plural, Nuremberg trials. I'm talking right now about the, the international trial, which, as I've mentioned, uh, was the first such international trial in human history. And it involves these crimes of the Verbrechenstadt. Well, that raises a question, which is, um, it's one thing to call a state a criminal. It's another thing to basically pinpoint where that criminality lies. And uh, certainly for Carl Jaspers in 1965, 20 years later, um, he basically said that the core criminality of the Nazi Verbrechenstadt was its acts of extermination, which I think is probably something which most people would agree with today. That is, if you ask someone what's the core criminal act, the quintessential criminal act of Nazi Germany, they probably focus on uh, the Holocaust, crimes of the Holocaust, the extermination of civilian populations. That was not the answer that was given at Nuremberg. At Nuremberg, the central crime of the uh, German state was said to be its act of aggression. That is, that it committed um, crimes against the peace. It had launched a war of, uh, of aggression. And the war of aggression was, was really the central focus of uh, the trial. And the acts of state-sponsored atrocity, um, which were comprehended at Nuremberg as crimes against humanity, they played somewhat of a, of a secondary role um, at the trial, interestingly enough. Can you tell us more about why they focus so much on aggression or a war of aggression instead of atrocity, or you called it state-sponsored atrocity? Yeah, it, it, was, it was quite interesting. So one of the reasons, and it made sense at the time, uh, the reasoning was that, well, aggression is the supreme international crime because if you didn't have a war of aggression, you wouldn't have war crimes and you wouldn't have crimes against humanity. So the idea was that if Germany had never attacked its neighbors, then you would have never had all these other atrocities, which on, on some level, you know, made sense. So it was almost like a, a kind of an argument about causation. No aggression, no other horrible things happening. Another thing, and this gets a little bit more technical, is Western legal thought had basically recognized certain prerogatives of state sovereigns. And one basic prerogative of the sovereign was that the way a sovereign state treats its own citizens or its own legal subjects is its own business. It's not a matter of international law. And so the Nuremberg prosecution or the allies at Nuremberg basically said, well, we don't want to reach too aggressively into the affairs of sovereign states. 
And in, in fact, the Soviet Union and the United States had very particular reasons to have that, to, to reach that conclusion. Uh, in fact, the chief American prosecutor, uh, Robert Jackson, who actually was a member of the United States Supreme Court, he took a leave of absence from the Supreme Court to lead the American prosecution at Nuremberg, Jackson said, well, we don't want to create a precedent in which some future international court could basically hold a governor of a southern state responsible for crimes against humanity for upholding racist laws in this uh, southern state. And so Nuremberg said, we want to make sure that there's a clear international component to the crimes that we are trying at Nuremberg. And by insisting that crimes against humanity had to be connected to a war of aggression, they basically then tried to limit the reach of international law into the internal business of states. And in the years after Nuremberg, what, what happened to that focus on aggression? Well, it's, it's interesting because so Nuremberg basically stands for the proposition that aggression is the uh, supreme crime in international law. Um, international criminal law quickly abandons that. They quickly come along and they say, no, not really. Uh, there are other things that are worse than the crime of aggression. And one of the things that emerges is the notion of genocide. Now, genocide is a term that is coined for the very first time in 1944 by a Polish-Jewish jurist named Ralphio Lemkin. And Lemkin had actually fled Poland. He had uh, settled in the United States. And he was working as a legal advisor to the United States War Department when he tried to come up with a term to describe what was happening to the Jewish population in and Nazi-occupied Europe. And he took an ancient Greek word for group, uh, genos, and he took the Latin word for murder, side, and he put them together and he came up with this term genocide. And in 1948 already, the United Nations recognized genocide as an independent crime in international law. And one of the things that was very different about the focus on genocide rather than the Nuremberg orientation is that in the 1948 UN Convention, the United Nations recognized that genocide was a crime that could take place in times of peace. Again, this was not something that Nuremberg basically said, crimes against humanity are international crimes because they're connected to aggressive war. Again, they really focused on aggressive war. And already by 1948, the UN is saying, well, there might be this even worse thing, this kind of killing of members of a group as a group. And that doesn't have to be connected to aggression at all. It could just happen in a kind of rogue state attacking its own legal subjects. And so you see this kind of interesting switch away from aggression towards these, um, what I describe as these crimes of atrocity, like crimes against humanity or uh, genocide. The other thing that explains the shift away from Nuremberg's focus on aggression is if you look at something like genocide, the UN was able to supply a pretty good definition of what genocide is. The international community in the years after Nuremberg really struggled to define what the crime of aggressive war is. At Nuremberg, they were almost able to ignore the problems with definition because 
Nazi aggression was so extreme that basically whatever definition you come up with aggression, the Nazi war is going to fit that. But in the years afterwards, especially as Cold War tensions grew, and as you start having these kind of proxy wars between the United States and the Soviet Union, you could imagine that American jurists were very worried about uh, defining aggression in certain ways. Soviets were worried about it defining it in other ways. And so the whole effort to define what we mean when we use this term aggressive war, it really created huge problems for international jurists. In fact, in this one conference that took place in the 1950s, these international jurists started arguing, well, do we even need a definition? Maybe we don't even need a definition. And then they started arguing about that. And so I think two of those things kind of went in tandem with one another. Uh, one is the fact that uh, international jurists had a really hard time coming up with a definition that major nations could buy into, read Soviet Union, United States. And at the same time, this, this recognition that, no, maybe there, there, it's these kind of acts of, of state-sponsored atrocity against its own people that really, those are really the, the core crimes in international law. And is that shift still going on? Or to put it differently, what does that mean for the practice of international law today? I think in many ways that shift has continued up until today. So, for example, if you look at the tribunals that the United Nations created in the 1990s, to deal with the horrific things that were happening in the former Yugoslavia and in Rwanda. Those tribunals were really focusing on crimes against humanity and genocide. They didn't even include aggression as a chargeable offense. So it looked like aggression had really fallen out of the focus of uh, international criminal lawyers. If you look, for example, at the International Criminal Court, which is this permanent court that was established in The Hague in 2002, up until very recently, uh, that court didn't even have jurisdiction over the crime of aggression. Uh, when it was originally created in 2002, the only crimes it had jurisdiction over were genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes. Only recently, over the last few years, again, did it even get jurisdiction over aggression. So we can say that the post-Nuremberg trend has really been a very dramatic shift away from focusing on aggression to focusing on atrocity. That changed a little bit on February 24th, 2022, however. So you already mentioned the recent Russian attack on Ukraine. Do you want to tell us what happened to the focus on state-sponsored atrocity and Maybe you can also tell us which of these categories, war of aggression and state-sponsored atrocity, fits the Russian attack or whether they both fit on different levels. So one thing I think the Russian attack did was suddenly to re-energize international interests on the crime of aggression, on the crime of aggressive war. Because it seems, again, like I said about the case of Nazi Germany, Whatever definition you have of aggressive war, it looks like the Russian attack of Ukraine is going to fit it. 
it seems like a very, very transparent instance of aggressive war. And so, you know, I was just um, reading some articles for, in the newspaper from the last couple of days in which people are once again using this term, aggressive war is the supreme international crime, which again, from my perspective at least, it's very interesting to hear people calling it the supreme international crime because for the last 60, 70 years, no one had done that. Everyone was focusing on genocide, really, as the supreme international crime. At the same time, it's not really clear whether you can actually try anyone in Russia for the crime of aggression. But to return to your question, that is, can we think of the war in Ukraine, should we think of it as a war of aggression, or should we think of this as an example of state-sponsored atrocities? I think the answer is yes to both. I think what we've seen so far seem to be very clear, again, almost like transparent examples of war crimes and crimes against humanity. So you can almost say that Russia, in a short period of time, has really already hit the trifecta. They're committing war crimes in this war of aggression, and they're committing crimes against humanity as well. I even read a piece in The New Yorker, which was arguing that the Russians are also committing a genocide which is an allegation that President Zelensky has made as well. I'm not sure if I would necessarily agree with that, but I'm not sure that really adds anything to our conversation. We don't need to kind of check every box in order to say that the Russians are committing international crimes and the most serious of them. You also mentioned that in the recent years or decades, we tended to focus more on state-sponsored atrocity and kind of neglect those aggressive wars. Do you think that might have something to do with the fact that we have gotten so used to aggressive wars not happening, at least not in Europe or the Western world? I think that's exactly right. You know, the whole kind of scheme of focusing on aggression is uh, dated. This model that emerges out of Nuremberg that works from the assumption that you're going to see tanks rolling over uh, a border into another country, well, that's just not going to happen anymore. Or if it is going to happen anymore, it's going to happen, you know, in a war against, let's say, uh, an attack on a terrorist group or something like that. We're beyond the age of one state simply attacking another state in this almost kind of, you know, 19th century or early 20th century model. Well, so much for that confidence. Um, you know, and I think even for many people, it was almost unthinkable that uh, this would happen. I think, you know, many of the people here in Europe today uh, feel, you know, profoundly traumatized, having grown up in a period of peace and thinking that, uh, yeah, these European wars uh, were a thing of the past. And it seems that international law is already responding to Russia's or Putin's attack. And on March 16th, The UN's International Court of Justice, the ICJ in The Hague, has ruled by 13 votes to two that, quote, the Russian Federation shall immediately suspend military operations that it commanded on February 24th, 2020, in the territory of Ukraine, with only the Russian and Chinese judges voting against the order. Such rules are said to be binding under the UN Charter, but the ICJ has no means of enforcement. So how likely do you think it is that the ruling influences Putin's actions in any way? And what kind of pressure can it apply on Moscow? So obviously, um, once the ICJ made its ruling, Putin immediately ceased all hostilities and pulled all his troops out of Ukraine. That's a joke, obviously. 
That did not happen. The International Court of Justice is not a criminal court. Uh, so this is a court that's designed to resolve or handle disputes between nations. And as you point out, it makes a declaratory judgment, but it has no capacity to enforce that judgment. And so what effect will that have on Putin's war making? Zero. It will have no effect whatsoever. But, uh, you know, nonetheless, I think it's important to have that declaration, even though, again, we should bear in mind that, you know, having 13 judges against two dissenters is a powerful statement. But we're reminded again how deeply politicized international uh, law can be uh, in as much as you even have these two judges, one from Russia and the other one from China, dissenting from this declaration that's issuing from the ICJ. The ICJ is not a criminal court, but there is the International Criminal Court. I think you mentioned that earlier as well. Does it have a different jurisdiction and might that have any effect on Putin and his actions? Right. So the, the International Criminal Court was basically kind of um, open shop in 2002. And it was meant to supplant the need for these ad hoc courts. And by ad hoc court, I mean that, for example, Nuremberg was an ad hoc court in the sense that it was created to deal with a certain set of criminal charges. And once the trial was completed, it closed up shop. I mentioned these uh, two other courts that were created by the UN in the wake of atrocities in the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda. Those UN tribunals were also ad hoc courts in the sense that Uh, they were given a certain mandate, and once they completed that mandate, they also, for example, they closed up shop. The International Criminal Court is meant to be a permanent institution. So every time there's some new atrocity in the world, you don't have to run to the UN and create a new court. The International Criminal Court has, as I mentioned, jurisdiction over genocide, uh, war crimes, and crimes against humanity. And then recently, its jurisdiction over aggressive war was activated. And by recently, I mean about five years ago or so. Is it the case that uh, Russia could be tried, or that is, I should say, members of the Russian leadership could be tried for the crime of aggression in the International Criminal Court? And the short answer is no. It's not going to happen. And the reason it's not going to happen is, again, the jurisdiction of the ICC over the crime of aggression is very limited, very, very limited. So, for example, the only way it could exercise jurisdiction is if the UN Security Council referred the case to the ICC. And you think, oh, Okay, well, that's nice. Why doesn't the UN Security Council refer the case to the ICC? Well, the problem is that the UN Security Council, which is composed of 15 uh, different states, has five permanent uh, states. These are called the P5 states. And the P5 states are China, France, Great Britain, Russia, and the United States. And these P5 states, they have a veto over any resolution issuing from the Security Council. And so Russia, in my mind, is not going to permit the Security Council to refer any charge of aggression to the ICC. There are technically other ways in which the ICC 
could exercise jurisdiction over aggression, but in this case with Russia, impossible, can't happen. What about these other crimes, crimes against humanity or uh, war crimes? Could the ICC exercise jurisdiction over those? The answer is yes, they could do that. And right now the ICC has already opened investigations looking into Russian war crimes and Russian uh, crimes against humanity. But then again, we still need to bear in mind that in order to conduct a trial, you need a defendant. And it raises this question of how would the ICC ever get its hands on people to try? So in theory, the ICC could hold Putin or people from the Russian government responsible for war crimes but in practice, you don't think that's going to happen? Well, it would raise the question of how does Putin or senior members of the Russian leadership end up in The Hague? And it doesn't seem like there's a clear path for doing that. On the other hand, we should bear in mind that when the, um, the Yugoslavia tribunal began its work in The Hague in the mid-1990s, and at the time, uh, a lot of observers said, ugh, what a ridiculous court. It's just dealing with these little fish, these, you know, these small members of the Yugoslavian army who were able to seize, whereas all the big perpetrators like Slobodan Milosevic and Karadzic and Mladic, none of them, they're never going to end up on trial in The Hague. Well, all three of them ended up on trial in The Hague. And so, you know, I would never say impossible. I think one thing we would need to bear in mind is it's not going to happen without regime change in Russia. And regime change in Russia probably suggests something very destabilizing happening throughout the entire world. Um, but again, is it impossible? No, it's not impossible. So do you think that peace talks between Russia and the Ukraine are going to be more successful in short terms? It's a little bit beyond my pay grade, that kind of uh, speculation. But I guess my short answer is no. I mean, I, I, I don't think so. You know, one of the things that a lot of people have been saying, and I'll, I'll simply kind of repeat this, that if you could imagine something worse than Putin quickly winning the war in U Ukraine, it's Putin losing the war. And what we see is, um, you know, something that we've seen in uh, Chechnya and then in Syria as well, which is Russians are more than happy to just pound civilian targets. And uh, particularly given the fact that their military doesn't seem to be making the breakthroughs that they expected to make early on, it seems like they might just dig in their positions and uh, rather than expose their soldiers to more warfare, just kind of use uh, long-range missiles and artillery to pound uh, civilian targets, which is, again, crimes against humanity and war crimes. But even if speculating about the peace talks and their outcome is beyond your payroll, let us look at some of the terms from an international law perspective. So regarding those peace talks, we often hear terms like security guarantees or international treaties. Can you explain what these terms mean in international law and who is able to grant such treaties or to ensure that those parties stick to those treaties or follow the rules? Well, I suppose one of the biggest problems with international law is that we now have no international government. And in the sense of not having international government, we realize that there really isn't a kind of 
clear international, let's say, police force. You know, what we do see is we have seen, for example, the UN having uh, its peacekeeping missions. And uh, sometimes these peacekeeping missions can be uh, quite successful um, when you put soldiers, you know, on the ground for the purposes of maintaining peace in a region that has been, let's say, torn by war or by ethnic violence. The one thing that complicates all of that is when you're dealing with a nuclear power like Russia. And that's where, um, you know, treaties, in a sense, they become unenforceable in the sense that the, the cost of breaking a treaty would probably be what we see now. Actually, it's been very impressive the way in which the uh, Western states have uh, united for the purposes of bringing sanctions against uh, Russia. But we've also seen an unwillingness of uh, Western states to also commit their own military force for the purposes of trying to end the war. And that makes perfect sense because none of us, I think, want to see a nuclear holocaust emerging out of uh, this invasion of uh, Ukraine. So the problem that thinkers have been aware of for centuries now, which is it's very difficult to pacify the international community in the absence of an international government. Let us look a bit into the future now. How do you think this war that is currently happening in Ukraine will shape future historians' perspective on international law? I suppose there are two possible stories that would emerge out of this. One is it reminds us of the weakness of international criminal law, especially if such an act of international aggression goes unpunished. That said, I should also point out, you know, I, I mentioned that regardless of what happens in Russia, even if there's regime change, there's no way that Putin is going to be tried for jurisdictional reasons before the ICC for aggressive war. But there are these international lawyers right now who are talking about, oh, well, we could create this other type of courts or even maybe domestic courts could try him for the crime of aggression. And again, that is possible. On the other hand, I think when we're talking about international criminal law, we have to almost recalibrate our understandings of what we mean by success. So success doesn't necessarily mean prosecuting someone. Uh, success might be something like uh, maybe indicting somebody uh, like a Putin so that he can no longer travel because he knows that if he travels, uh, he could be arrested and put on trial. And so the idea of turning someone like a Putin into an international pariah we could imagine that that could register as a success unto itself. But certainly the fact that the international community has responded to what has happened in Ukraine in such a full-throated and unified fashion, and that there seems to be such agreement that what is happening there is a criminal act, I think that itself it represents a kind of important success of international criminal law. Um, you know, if you go back to the beginning, let's say, of the 20th century, no one would say that any of these things represent crimes. They might say they're morally abhorrent, they find it regrettable, but they don't represent crimes in international law. So the very fact that people now have this discourse and this way of thinking, and the way of thinking really has galvanized this uh, response to Russia 
this very aggressive sanction policy, this incredible change, let's say, in the German commitment to its own military armament policy, all that, I think, is uh, in certain ways a, a success for international law. So again, maybe we need to just kind of recalibrate what we understand as a victory for international criminal law. That is it for this episode. You can listen to more of our Beyond the Lecture series on our website, AmericanAcademy.de. There, you can also read the latest from the American Academy's Berlin Journal, watch recent lecture videos, and connect with the Academy on Facebook and on Twitter. Our show today was produced and edited by Joanna Schallau. I'm your host, Denise Gammon, from the American Academy in Berlin. Thanks for listening.